I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Hi. Hey, what's up? Hey, it's our 100th episode. (gasps) No, 200th. Our 100th. Oh, our 100th. Yes. Wait, really? (laughs) Yeah. I thought we were, I thought it was our 200th for some reason. No, it's our 100th episode. You're right. Mm Mm-hmm. Why was I thinking 200? That would be a lot. two years. Because it's two years. Okay. It's our 100th episode. And you guys, we have been wanting to do this topic since we first started. It has been at the top of our list. And we're like, no, we've got to save it. We need a lot of research for it. It should be something special. But you know what? You know what's (laughs) funny is like... We said all of that, and then when I was doing research for this, I'm like, we have basically talked about all of this already. Yeah. Uh, so this is just going to be a more, like, in-depth kind of look at yeah. intersectionality and what it means and what it is. Well, and how it started, because for yeah. me, I I didn't know a lot about its creation and what its intention originally was and who Kimberly Crenshaw was and all of this kind of stuff. So we're going to give you some new information, but it's going to be a lot of um, the ideas that we talk on all the time. So it's just going to tie everything together in a pretty bow. Yeah, because I feel like this especially came under scrutiny in like 2016 with the Women's March, actually January 2017, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, Whenever this word was kind of being tossed around a lot and people not really understanding exactly what it meant, a lot of people getting in their feelings about 
the difference between white feminism, quote, white feminism, and intersectional feminism. Yes. Uh, so we're going to take a little bit of a look at all of that today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the definition for intersectional feminism is the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class, and gender as they apply to a given individual or group, regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. So basically saying that a white woman's experience is different than a black woman's experience and how she then kind of has the two identities of being both black and female, where usually a white woman would just kind of have that experience of being a woman in the eyes of the law. It's kind of how it started. Right. It's kind of like interlocking oppression, right? Yes. Different kind of levels of oppression that kind of interlock together and work inside one human being. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I'm just going to say off the top because my notes are kind of all over the place and I pulled from a bunch of different places, uh-huh. so I won't be able to necessarily credit as I go. I'll do the same uh, thing because mine are as well. Yeah, so I got a lot of this from a USA Today article, an Everyday Feminism article, which was great, actually. Ooh, like, I'm going to start using them. Yeah, like, it, I was kind of, didn't have, like, huge expectations. I saved a bunch of things and then opened yeah. and read, and it was actually one of the better ones. I read one awesome. of the more in-depth articles about in- intersectionality, so give them uh, a look. I did get some of the history history stuff on Wikipedia, and then also there was a iwda.org.au about what does intersectional feminism actually mean that I also pulled some of this from. Mine are all different than yours except for Wikipedia. Um, I found information on denison.edu, which was like an academic article about gender studies. I got, I have found a great bustle article uh, Mm. that I'm going to talk about what how to know if your feminism is intersectional. Of course, Wikipedia and a Vox article. Awesome. So to kind of go along with what you were saying, um, in one of the things that I read, they were talking about if feminism is advocating for women's rights and equality between the sexes, intersectional feminism is the understanding of how women's overlapping identities, including race, class, ethnicity, religion, and sexual orientation, impact the way they experience oppression and discrimination. Yes. And for an example here, they said... A white woman is penalized by her gender, but has the advantage of race. A black woman has the disadvantage by her gender and her race. Mm -hmm. A Latina lesbian experiences discrimination because of her ethnicity, her gender, and her sexual orientation. Exactly. And the list could go on and Uh on. I mean, and I think as intersectionality became more part of the mainstream um, lexicon, as far as, like, verbiage that especially feminists were using, it became more inclusive Mm -hmm. because initially, as we'll talk about when we discuss the history of the term, it was mainly looked at in terms of race and gender. Yes. And now we have it expanded to include um, abilities, to Mm -hmm. include body types. Yeah. So it's really become this kind of all-encompassing term to discuss the differences in advantage that people have, women have. Yes. Can we talk a little bit about how it was started? Yes, please. Okay, so Kimberly Crenshaw is uh, the creator of this theory of intersectionality, and she is a lawyer and a law professor at UCLA. And she introduced the idea of intersectionality in 1989 in a paper written for the University of Chicago Legal Forum, and it's titled, it's a long title, Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Politics. 
Wait. Yeah, it's a long one. I mean, those academic papers... I know, they don't mess around. They don't mess around. Those titles are hefty. She puts focus on how the law responds to issues of race and gender and how they are looked at separately in the eyes of the law. There was something that I was reading uh, where she was very inspired by the Anita Hill case, which I Mm -hmm. think I read something about her being a part of it in some way, but don't quote me on that. I'm not sure. But she was basically talking about the fact that Anita Hill was a black woman made things uh, more difficult for her because she had to kind of um, push aside the black part of her and look at more of the woman side of her because a lot of the black community really wanted Clarence Thomas to be on the Supreme Court. So she felt like she had to lose some of her autonomy being an African-American woman and focus just on the woman part. That's what Kimberly Crenshaw kind of felt. And meanwhile, she's also experiencing discrimination in both camps. Exactly, you know? exactly. And um, she also pointed to a 1976 case of de Graffenried versus General Motors, mm-hmm. and she used it to illustrate intersectionality. So this case was five African-American women, and they sued the car manufacturer General Motors for racial and gender discrimination. But the courts found that women in general weren't discriminated against uh-huh. at a GM because they had no problem hiring women to be secretaries. Yeah. Uh, and that General Motors also employed African Americans, so they therefore weren't racist. Yes, but, but together. It, right. It ignored the fact that the sheer majority of secretaries were white women and that all of the factory workers were men. Yeah. So the women lost the case because it completely disregarded. They're like, well, they're not sexist because yeah. they hire women. And they're not racist because they hire black men. Yeah. Uh, so what's the problem? Completely ignoring that black women face a completely different uh, set of challenges. Yeah, exactly. There were a few other cases as well that she cited during uh, the paper with the really long title. Uh, The one that you mentioned, also Moore versus Hughes Helicopter Incorporation and Payne v. Travel. Is that a typo? I don't know. Uh, Crenshaw argues that in each of these cases, the court's view of discrimination shows limitations by only choosing one issue to focus on, Mm -hmm. as you said. And, you know, I put in parentheticals, the law seemed to forget that black women are both black and women. You know, that intersectionality was not there. They were not able to compartmentalize the fact that their experience is different than a black man or a white woman. Right. Yeah. She also took a very close look at things like domestic violence and rape. Mm -hmm. And she did, again look at it from the lens of um, sex and race, Mm -hmm. which we now have even put it under the microscope further to look at it from the perspective of, you know, sex, race, um, gender identity. Yeah. Uh, It goes, you know, the list goes kind of like on and on. But at the time, she um, analyzed this and she said that these two forms of male violence against women, domestic violence and rape, that whenever it was happening to non-white women, it consisted of both racism and sexism, Mm -hmm. which I think is very true. I mean, we've discussed that whenever we've discussed the high rate of sexual assaults against Native American women, Mm -hmm. that very often there is this trans women element of, yeah, fetishization at play or um, hatred at play because of their race or identity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in addition to their sex or gender. Yeah, and I feel like that also puts a magnifying glass on the fact that, um, you know, I feel like, and this is this is on topic but off topic at the same time, so sorry, but, it, like, there's people when, like, Casey Affleck, for example, I was having a conversation with Max about him the other night because he was like, oh, there's this movie that he's in, 
he's kind of a piece of shit. And he's like, what did he like? Didn't he go in and his tidy whities and like go into some girl's bed? And I'm like, yeah. And he was like, well, he could probably get girls. And I'm like, well, it's not about getting girls. No. It's about the power. It's about like overpowering somebody and humiliating somebody and making someone feel uncomfortable and what that does for them. And I feel like that plays into when you're talking about the fetishization of other races and cultures. Mm-hmm. It, it magnifies the fact that this isn't about getting women. It's about making certain minorities feel lesser than that. I feel like a lot of um, the law doesn't really always comprehend. And I feel like oh, yeah. intersectionality that kind of puts a magnifying glass on the fact of what what a rapist views this quote-unquote sexual act as. Right. When we talked about um, rape culture, I think this came up a lot in that it's oftentimes the reason why people who are more marginalized, right? So, like, we can oftentimes say that the more intersections uh, that are at play in your identity, the more marginalized you are. And very often that goes hand-in-hand with your likelihood of being sexually assaulted Mm -hmm. uh, or raped if you go down that list. And I think the reason that is is because there is this element of taking your power back and making these people feel small, right? So, like, the more power um, that, you know, women started to get, or particularly women of color, Mm -hmm. or the more visibility that different... Um, sexual orientation started to get, yeah. uh, the more threatening that became and the more likely it became for someone to want to take their power back from those groups. You yeah. Know? And it also amplifies how we treat white female victims as well. Like, you know, we've talked in the past in some episode about like the perfect rape victim is right. typically, you know, mm-hmm. like a teenage blonde white girl. It was a stranger in the streets who jumped at her, that kind of thing. And with intersectionality is saying that these people that the the same facts with the white woman is true plus an added um danger as well or like and they need to be represented as victims just as well as the white women right i mean with the perfect victim you know for instance yes it's like white women would be far more likely to be believed and protected yes uh because they don't have the added difficulty of racism whereas in general um black women if we're using them as an example or black people are viewed as more dangerous Mm -hmm. less likely to be given sympathy i mean this is off track a little bit but i mean Let's go back to Hunger Games and when Rue was cast and you had people literally on Twitter talking about an eight or nine year old girl and saying, because she was black, I didn't have as much sympathy when she died in this movie. I didn't movie. know that. You didn't know that? Oh, it was a no. big deal. It was all over. I mean, and Amanda Stenberg, is that yeah. her name? Yes. Yeah. She, that was kind of the beginning of her feminist journey because she was like yeah. eight or nine and she was having all of this stuff thrown at her. There were petitions about Rue being black, even though she was black in the book. In the book, yeah. Uh, but I guess people were able to like not picture her that way. And there were tweets that said, I, I have less sympathy would admit that. for her dying because <sighs> she was she was black. So I, it, it didn't matter as much to me. How disgusting is that? Yeah. That is, and that is a child. <laughs> like, I mean, come on. It's kind of perfect as far as like it is the most perfect example Example. of that is what you're up against if you are a minority who's facing the same issue it's you are whether conscious or otherwise there's this kind of like unconscious bias a lot of the times from people who would say that they're not racist but there is because of years of conditioning uh, societal conditioning in our community uh that they may unconsciously 
be less likely to believe you yeah. or less likely to have sympathy for you. I'm just amazed that people like came out and said, I have less sympathy for... Yeah, I'll try and find the tweet, but essentially that's exactly what that's was said. That's like yeah. ballsy to just straight up be like, yep, I'm fucking racist. About like, a that's, child. That's yeah. pretty intense. Imagine telling on yourself like that. Incredible. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's kind of crazy. So I know that we have talked about it many times on this podcast before, but just if you're a new listener, um, you can go back and listen to our some of our very first episodes, which were the waves of feminism in which yeah. we talked about this. I feel like this comes up a lot. If you go back and listen to uh, our feminist fave episode where we talk about Polly Murray, we discussed mm-hmm. this, um, kind of like the history of the beginnings or the lack of intersectionality in the first waves yeah. of the feminist movement. But if you are a new listener, let's just briefly kind of go over... Let's do it. That just a little bit, because in the beginning, of course, of the feminist movement, the first wave, it was really a lot of middle class to upper class white women. And it was mostly about achieving political equality. Yes. And less about kind of like the dynamics of um, the way that women are treated kind of, like, socially and especially discounted any woman who was not white and didn't have any kind of, like, agency. And to go back even further, a lot of the feminist movement started out of the abolitionist movement. And a lot of black women were involved because the white women were getting involved in the abolitionist movement. But then once they wanted the right to vote... They abandoned that, and a lot of black women and black men were not allowed to participate in the feminist movement because they wanted the right to vote so badly that they had to kind of neglect the original movement in order to achieve the goals that they wanted. Right. And then it became very middle-class, white lady central. Right, yes. And, you know, Bell Hooks, after Kimberly Crenshaw came out and started discussing the idea of the Mm -hmm. the intersections at play, um, Bell Hooks, who is also, you know, a famous black author. She's awesome. She came forward and said kind of something that, to me, most concisely wraps up what it is. And she said that, like, when intersectionality came to the forefront, it challenged the notion that gender was the primary factor determining a woman's fate. And that the movement for intersectionality, it disrupted the or disputed the idea of earlier feminist movements that we were talking about, Mm -hmm. which primarily were led by white middle class women and kind of had this idea that women were this large homogenous body. Yeah. That there wasn't any kind of like nuance to the life experiences of women. Uh, Recognizing that that the forms of oppression experienced by white middle-class women were different from those experienced by black, poor, or disabled women. Feminists began seeking ways to understand how gender, race, and class combine to determine the female destiny. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, just kind of... That's sort of how we moved moved into this space. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the opposite of intersectional feminism, and that is white feminism. Right. And when I explain white feminism to people, I usually use the example of wage gap, because the wage gap is a big white feminist uh, cross to bear. That's the thing that they mention a lot. But what they lack in mentioning is the fact that while white women make 75 cents to a man's dollar... Or sorry, I think it's 78. I wrote 75, but I think it's 78. I think it is 78. Yeah, but a black woman makes 64 cents to a white man's dollar, and a Hispanic woman makes 56 cents to a white man's dollar. So the th- that's what makes it intersectional. If you're talking about the wage gap, everybody, like that number, you know, 78 cents on the dollar is a very common 
piece of information that people have, yet we forget that as you go down the minority group, they're making less and less in comparison to a white man's dollar. Right, and it becomes very easy to focus on the things that make us oppressed rather than the things that liberate us. And for that reason, I think a lot of white women really (laughs) badly want to be part of this, like, Mm -hmm. I'm oppressed too Mm -hmm. kind of group. And again, I was talking to you about, God, why can't I ever remember her name? Uh, Michelle Wolf's stand-up. Yeah. And she was kind of talking about about how, like, <laughs> I always think about this when I think about white feminism, where she's just like, it was kind of a lot of middle-class white ladies laying under their duvets in their four-poster beds kind of being like, sometimes things aren't fair for me. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? And I'm like, it's true. It's sometimes true. things aren't fair for you. Yeah. But it's not the same. Like, you are arguing for, um, hey, I want to be able to have a job. Meanwhile... The black woman who's cleaning your house does have a job. Yes, it is cleaning your fucking shitty house. And you want to close your eyes to that. You know, like, close your eyes to the oppression that's happening within your home. And that's something that bothers me about the entertainment industry because there are so many white women who talk about having equal pay to their male counterparts. While that is very important, I feel like black women especially and Asian women and Hispanic women who are actors, you don't really hear them bringing it up very often. You have heard a few, like I think there was something with Crazy Rich Asians. Yes, which a writer. A writer. A writer, that's right. Um, But that's something that, it's interesting that the wage gap platform is very much like a white actress platform Mm -hmm. in the entertainment industry when the white women who are talking about this they're mostly talking about themselves, their own experiences, which I understand, but I wish that they would bring up more the fact that their black female co-star is probably getting the shittier end of the deal than they are. Right. I mean, I think Jessica Chastain did. She yeah, came forward. I love her. Yeah, she's amazing. And she came forward and she talked about... Um, Gosh, who's the woman from The Help who made the shit pie? Can't remember. Oh, 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 oh. It's not Viola Davis. It's I love I love her. Octavia Spencer. Octavia Spencer. Yes. So she came forward in a movie that they had done together. It wasn't The Help, but it was a different movie. Yeah. Where she kind of said, like, she's making even less than I am, and I'm not moving forward with this project until she gets paid the same as me. You exactly. Know, which, which is how it should be. That is how it should be. And basically, white, fem- white feminism overshadows the struggles of women of color, LGBT. LGBTQ community and women of minority groups. Um, And I was reading that intersectionality and education is the key to ending white feminism. Right. I mean, and it's also important to note that white feminism does not mean that all white feminists. Yes. Are Practice bad, white right? Yeah, exactly. I feel like people hear that and it's very triggering. Um, white women hear Get that and it. they say, "Well, <laughs> I'm white and I'm a feminist." Are you saying that like I adhere to these beliefs? And that's not what. That is. No, but I mean, honestly, I am a a white woman and I am feminist. And you do have to be more aware, though. Yes, you have to check yourself. That's the thing Mm -hmm. is that it is very easy as a white woman to latch onto the things that directly affect you. And I would challenge everybody who considers themselves to be a feminist who is a white woman to constantly be checking your privilege and to be exploring how the you know the things that you feel are oppressive to you research how they might be even more oppressive or how that affects other groups of people right you know you can't because it it would be very easy to fall into that as a white woman because we're selfish 
by nature. You yeah, know? I mean, it's very easy for everyone. I yeah. think it's easy to find the ways in which you are being oppressed and mm-hmm. cling on to that. Um, Kate, who is a writer from Batty Mamzelle, uh, she defined white feminism as white feminism is a set of beliefs that allows for the exclusion of issues that specifically affect women of color. It is a one size fits all feminism where middle class white women are the mold that others must fit. It is a method of practicing feminism, not an indictment of every white feminist everywhere always. Yes, exactly, exactly. <clears throat> and there was something very famous that happened, I think, about 2016. We may have even discussed it on this podcast, where Annie Lennox, who, I mean, musical icon, have mm-hmm. always loved her, uh, androgynous icon, mm-hmm. but she came out basically uh, whenever Beyonce came on stage and she had that big feminist behind her yeah, yeah. and came out, quote-unquote, uh, as as being a feminist to the world, uh, Annie Lennox came forward and said, listen, twerking is not feminism. <laughs> That's what she said. And um, she called Beyonce's expression of feminism disturbing, exploitative, and troubling. Yeah, that's not okay. And it's kind of the perfect example of, like, if feminism doesn't look how you think it should look, uh, it doesn't present in the way that you think it should present, yeah. despite the fact that... Beyonce is a black woman, and, like, maybe some of these expressions that she's using to define the things that make her feel empowered as a woman are within her culture, first of all. And then, secondly, you don't get to make the rules on what feminism looks like for other people. Twerking can be feminist as fuck, you guys. Don't hate on twerking. (laughs) And something to look for when you're looking um, for people who maybe are white feminists. Yeah. Some some uh, terms to look for, and this is something that I have seen within the feminist community over and over and over, is our terms like, why do you have to divide us by bringing up race? Yep. You hear that all the time where you're like, we're in this together, guys. It was part of why I had to leave Pantsuit Nation. Yeah. I was in Pantsuit Nation after the 2016 election, which was kind of a place at first yeah. where people could kind of gather to gain... Commiserate. Yeah, commiserate. <laughs> Uh, get some, like, solace and support yeah. uh, about the outcome of the 2016 election. Right. And it quickly devolved, and I actually ended up leaving that group because nobody really wanted to talk about the issues of intersectionality and very yeah. often would say, I don't understand why you're you're bringing this up. We're all on the same team. We're all on the same side. Why would you divide us further by bringing up race? And then to kind of point back to our last episode talking about J.K. Rowling, a lot of TERFs are white feminists. They are people who um, don't believe, they believe that the issues of quote-unquote biological women yeah. um, are more important than any other woman, uh, yeah. any other kind of, like, intersection. I was actually, because you brought it up, I was amazed at our comment section on our J.K. Rowling episode post on Instagram, how the TERFs came out. You know, I, I was like, whoo! I wasn't too surprised just because J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter is such a beloved, f- mm-hmm. you know, a beloved figure, beloved fandom. Right. That anytime you ask people to challenge something that they love, yeah. they will bend over backwards to try and do that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I just wanted to point out one more thing yeah. about white feminism that I think is something that is important to keep in mind. A lot of times, feminists kind of get on men who say, like, well, why can't you, if it's for everybody, if it's about equality, why can't you just call it humanist? Yeah. Right? And they'll they'll be able to very clearly articulate why you can't do that. And this is kind of the most perfect comic, which I'll put on our 
on our Instagram. Yeah. But it's it's kind of perfect. So it's a guy, and then there's a white woman and a black woman. And the guy is saying, the white guy is saying, why do you have to call it feminism? We all deserve equality, and the term makes me feel left out. You should be an equalist or a humanist. And the white woman says... Because the continued disenfranchisement of women needs to be addressed specifically. And then in the next one, in the next window, it's the white woman uh, talking to the black woman. And she says, why do you need black feminism? It should just be feminism. Why would you divide us like that? And so that is kind of like what what happens here. Where It's just like white women are very easily able to articulate why we need feminism, why we need something very specific for yeah. for the oppression of women, but then it can't understand why different groups may need something different exactly. within feminism. Yeah. You know, and um, yeah, I just think that that's, it's such a concise way of, it's of a, putting that. It is a perfect way of saying that. So I'm going to start going through um, ways to know that your, inter- that your feminism is intersectional. And uh, before that, the three best ways to practice intersectionality is one, to examine your privilege, two, to listen to each other, and three, practice feminism through a broader, more inclusive lens. For me, number two is a big one. Listen to each other. Know when to stay quiet. Know when the other person should have the floor. That is a big, big, big one. Listening will get you far, and that is something that I need to practice a lot. I mean, not necessarily with feminism, but just in life. You know, yeah, no, yeah, just I, making I understand sure I really hear everything, you know, mm-hmm. which is hard because I'm hard of hearing. Um, so how to know your feminism is intersectional. Thank you, Bustle article for this. It includes people of color. Co-chair woman of the Women's March, Linda Sarsour, has said, if you want to know if you're going the right way, brothers and sisters, follow a woman of color. It includes LGBTQ plus community. Uh, you recognize homophobia and heteronormativity and how it exists regardless of marriage laws. And the fact that being straight is seen as the norm in society is problematic. And we talked about this uh, in our last episode as mm-hmm. well with J.K. Rowling, uh, the idea of like colorblind uh, writing. Um, the norm is going to be that we assume Hermione is white. Right, the norm yeah. is going to be to assume that Dumbledore is straight. Yeah, the default will always be whatever the prominent thing is in society and how that can make... Uh, marginalized communities feel even more marginalized. Yeah. You know, and I also think when we're talking about listening and intersectionality, it is so important because sometimes there will be things where my instinct is to be like, are we really getting upset about this? Yeah. You know, and, you know, I really challenge everyone to kind of look at that. To mm-hmm. st- anytime you have that thought, it's not saying that that thought is necessarily wrong. Yeah. But it is saying, like, maybe stop, examine it, and determine whether or not you are being insensitive. Because Mm -hmm. sometimes you are. Like, sometimes, you know, maybe you're not, maybe you've judged it correctly, but other times there's a possibility that maybe you are being a little bit insensitive. Like, there was a post recently, um, as an example, actually, I think this is a pretty good example, where a woman posted, it was in a wedding group I'm in, and she posted a picture of herself with her pretty severely disabled brother Mm -hmm. and on the surface in my view I'm like this is such a beautiful post about a woman sharing this moment with her brother at um at At her her wedding wedding. but there were a lot of disabled people in the comments who were like you're using this for inspiration porn yeah you're writing things like he won't ever be able to have a wedding of his own so I wanted to include him in mine yeah and to me on the surface as an able-bodied person, I was just like, no, this is a, a beautiful post of, yeah. of, of a, 
you know, sister wanting to share a moment with her brother. But that kind of language, looking at it more closely and listening to the disabled people in the group, talking about how, like, this is her brother. He should have been included in her wedding. Yes. You want a pat on the back for doing something that you should have done. Yeah. And to say that he's never going to have a wedding... You don't know that. Like, you don't need to... That is very inspirational porn-y, like, <laughs> Yeah, and language. so it took me a moment to have to, like, step back. I never would have examined it more closely. And my first instinct when I saw people getting upset about it was to be like, ugh, this is ridiculous. Yeah. But then I had to stop and think, like, mm-hmm. actually, maybe listen to the people in this group who are voicing their d- dissent. And I... Yeah. 100% sure that wasn't her intention. Right. You know what I mean? When she made that post. But that's kind but of what was, it is sometimes. It is. and she. But what she did is she still was kind of doing that. Even if that wasn't her thought process, like, oh, I'm going to post this to get so much sympathy. There is a bit of, like, that is a very normal thing. Like, they do it a lot on The Bachelor if somebody has, like, a disabled brother or sister. Yeah, like, what a good like, what a good sibling you are yeah, for being there. For yeah, them. or, like, like, I'm living out my dream for my sibling, and, you know, it's just, it's he's a my very, whole world, like, yeah, that kind of thing where... It's very gross. It, it takes away the uh, identity of the disabled person. Um, you know, being aware of people with disabilities is another one on the list here. Uh, people with disabilities are incredibly underrepresented, as we were just saying. Mm-hmm. Almost one in five people in America have a disability. Mm-hmm. That is a lot. Have some? They're on the spectrum in some way of having a disability. And recognizing ableism is key. And what you just said is a perfect example of that because you were like, no, I'm going to give these commenters a chance. I'm going to read what they're saying and try to understand it and realizing that, you know, ableism is very real. And again, that's kind of our default. Right. You know? Yeah. To I assume mean, that everybody is like able-bodied and things like that. And I think the biggest takeaway from that, because that was just this morning you yeah. know, for me, and <laughs> I, I think that the biggest takeaway for myself for that is to your instinct is going to be to be triggered, mm-hmm. right? Whenever someone tells you that something that you've done uh, is harmful in some way or oppressive in some way. Your instinct is to justify it and be like, no, it's not because X, Y, Z. Yeah. And what's really important is that we challenge that notion and we start thinking like, that wasn't my intention, but maybe I need to take a closer look at that thought, you know? Yep. And that this, what I'm going to say to that goes into the next uh, bullet point here that it includes trans and non-binary people. I made a mistake last night. I posted something on our Instagram that has now been taken down where it was talking about if men could have abortions, they could just go to an ATM and get, like, an abortion pill or whatever. And I was like, this is funny. Like, I've heard this quote before. It, it was a cute little kind of comic that was drawn. And I was like, I'm going to post this. And first I got one comment that was saying something about how, you know, men, male-identifying people can have children, too. I commented back, yes, of course, we know that. I just thought this was funny, whatever. And then we got another comment and another comment and another comment. And I took it down because I'm like... I didn't think that all the way through. And then once I was called out on it, of course, my first instinct is like, oh, I didn't, I don't mean it that way, you know, that kind of thing. And then I, and then once I started getting more comments, I was like, okay, but that's not what I want to represent this show (laughs) to be and our identity to be. And I'm like, this isn't conclusive with that. So I took it down and it, it, it's hard to face that, like, you made a mistake, especially when, like, I try to be the perfect feminist. And, and because you felt misunderstood. Yeah. And, like, that's, I think, a big part of it. When people get really, like, in their feelings or up in arms, it's because... Especially through comment sections, right, too. Right. It's because they know their heart, 
And, like, they know that maybe they didn't mean it like that. And so their instinct is to become defensive. Exactly. Um, which is normal. Like, it's completely yeah. human for that to be your instinct. Oh, yeah. I but mean, I, I did get, I, you know, I, I explained myself, but then I, I'm not going to explain myself to 50 commenters eventually about, and I don't want that to be how I'm represented. That's not, it wasn't my intention to disclude a group of people. It wasn't my intention to, uh, you know be more white feminist or anything like that. So I took it down because I don't want anybody to feel uh, underrepresented on our page. Yeah, absolutely. Know? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, like I said, the intersectional feminism includes trans and non-binary people. Equal rights are not exclusive to cisgendered people. Again, going back to the default. Sexual violence impacts all women, but trans women are significantly more likely to experience sexual assault than cisgendered people. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I, I have these um, stats here. So women uh, and men of color are more likely to experience forms of violence than white women and men. And there's also a wealth wealth privilege there, which we haven't even gotten into class much uh, yeah. during this discussion. But there's wealth privilege that can kind of create a buffer between you and any kind of like actual assault, right? Because like you're far more likely if you're walking to and from the bus every day yes. to face some form of violence than you are if you have a car pick you up at your house every day. Exactly. You know, something like that. Um, but you also find that bisexual women are far more likely to experience sexual violence than other women. And of those murdered in LBTQ-based hate incidents, 78% are people of color, and transgender people are 27% more likely to experience hate violence than cisgender people. Yeah. So, I mean, all women face risk in the yeah. United States of violence and sexual violence. But members of the LGBTQ community experience that at a greater um, yeah. number. And then women of color or people of color experience that number even greater. And then trans people experience mm -hmm. that even greater. So it just, yeah. it's, it's deeper and deeper depending on how marginalized so many, you are. There's so many hate groups. Like there's so many people that will like back up that violence. You know what I mean? Where I feel like there isn't so much a hate group for white women. You know what I mean? Like Right, yeah, not so not much. They're not really the, the targets of like large groups, I feel like. They're targets of gendered violence, totally, right? Totally, yes, totally. But, but as soon as you start going down this hole of... Um, I mean, there's an entire gay panic, trans panic defense. Yeah. Uh, where people have gotten off... Uh, from, you know... From saying they were panicked seeing a trans woman. You or know what I they, mean? Like, they, yeah, well, he came on to me and I panicked yeah. and then I killed him and so I was temporarily insane. You know, like, there are all of these kinds of... these kinds of things that we have actually taken in the United States as... Yeah, that's a valid defense. Yeah. That's a yeah. valid reason to kill someone because they showed <laughs> no. they showed a romantic interest in you and you weren't interested. Uh, you know, so it's kind of when you take a look at it in those terms, yeah. you can totally see where the intersections are at play and why it is so important to not just talk about sexual and violence, sexual violence in terms of a white woman's experience with yeah. sexual violence because a person of color's experience is going to be different. A trans person's experience is going to be different and oftentimes much worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that to me is the scariest. Um, so, you know, as a whole, intersectional feminism recognizes that gender is not binary, and while gender norms affect everyone, they do not affect everyone equally. Intersectional feminism is also body positive. Women who are typically represented in the media are models or display that type of body, when really the average women's size in America is size 14, and we are mostly seeing women who are like a size 0 or 2 in all of our media. 
An intersectional feminism must fight for equal representation in the media, which includes body size. Have you kept up at all with Jillian Michaels' comments about Lizzo? No. I don't know a whole lot about it, but I, sh- I should have mentioned that in the news. I imagine it's bad. It's not great. She's basically saying, like, I'm a big fan of her. Jillian Michaels is saying, I'm a big fan of Lizzo. I love her music. But she's displaying, you know, an unhealthy representation of, like, body size. And Lizzo kind of came back, like... What First fuck? of all, fuck you, no one asked your opinion. Yeah. Like, that, that's she, something that gets me where I'm just like, this health concern trolling, yes. it makes no fucking sense It makes sense no to me. sense. And she, her, her defense was saying that diabetes is not fashionable, is not trendy. Uh, you know, she, she's putting all people who are above a certain size in this idea that they are going to be diabetic and have other obesity-related diseases. And well, you know they, what? She, she is not Lizzo's doctor. She is not, like, we'll qualified have a, to say that. We should have an episode on concern trolling or health trolling because yeah. I'm a size 2. Yeah. I don't look unhealthy, mm-hmm. I don't think, in any way. No. But... I'm unhealthy. Like, I don't eat well. I don't exercise. And you know what? Never in my life has anyone ever gotten on my Instagram and said, I'm really worried about your health. It's nothing personal. I'm worried about your health. Yeah. Um, This is me being concerned for you. Yeah, exactly. Never. And so you're kind of hiding. I have, but it's another reason. (laughs) You're hiding fat phobia inside this kind of, like, realm of, like, oh, I love you and I'm worried about you. And that's such bullshit. But that's a different tangent that... It just rubs me wrong. It is complete bullshit. So she, yeah, what Jillian Michaels said was, she's trying to dig herself out of a hole, basically, and like you said, use the whole concerned excuse kind of thing, but it's like... I don't need you to be concerned about me, thank you so much. Yeah, I don't don't know if she was asked a question about Lizzo specifically, or if she just kind of brought it up, but I'm just like, why would you go How about you stop talking about other people's bodies, just period? Yeah, well, because she was on The Biggest Loser, right? She was one of the... People yes, in the biggest loser. She's a trainer. I mean, like, and that show is so harmful. Like, all of them ended up having health issues because they lost so much weight right. so fast. And it's it, not it healthy. Is, it is harmful, but in that show, at least you're dealing with people who are asking for your help. Like, yes, they're exactly. asking for your advice. Yeah. Like, Lizzo's not asking you for anything, no, so you can keep good. your nose out of it. I mean, and that's that's something that I'm loving seeing, to bring it back into intersectionality, is seeing the inclusion of different body types and recognizing that this should be um, something that we as feminists talk openly about. Right. Because I don't think that it was really part of the feminist agenda. Yeah. Uh, and it certainly wasn't something that I saw us talking about um, in terms of intersectionality at all, talking yeah. about, like, body equality. And there is something interesting that I've seen as well, where if you're tying body positivity in with race, the standard for a way that a woman should look, quote-unquote, is usually based on what the most popular white model at the time mm-hmm. looks like. And different races a lot of times have different... Body, body types, types, yes. Yeah, yeah, I didn't want to say that and be incorrect. I mean, from it's, what it's I've not seen, a blanket, of course. Like, you know, yeah. there are different body types of every... There's different of shapes course. of every race. But yeah. in general, there are certain attributes and features uh, that are more common right. within certain communities. Well, yeah. and if you look at, say, um, when Disney did Princess and the Frog and had their first black princess, mm-hmm. there were a lot of people that were saying that the animation didn't properly depict what a black woman would look like. I mean, I I don't know that I necessarily agree with that just right. because I I've faced so much just personally, not to make it about myself, but like 
I go on auditions all the time and I never get cast as a black person ever just because like I, I don't fit the mold of what people think that yeah. looks like. Um, the stereotype. Right. Yeah. And so uh, for me, I don't think that there is a way to draw a I black, agree. especially an African American. If you were talking about someone from a very particular part of Africa or something like that, then I'd be like, yeah, but African Americans are so mixed yeah. that like there's, there's no, no one, one way. way to draw yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. I do understand where they wanted to maybe explore a different type of uh, body type yes, for princesses. absolutely. And that could have been a great... It was a good opportunity. Might, might have been too much for the public, though, to have a different princess body type and a black princess. I they did it with Moana, though. They did. They, they did, and I love Moana. Yeah, Moana, which is great. Mm, Lover. So intersectional feminism is sex positive. The idea that sex is healthy and explicitly consensual is a positive thing. So talking about sex in a way that isn't just about abstinence talking about ways to be healthy within sex and um, also putting the importance on it being consensual, Mm -hmm. which really should just be in everybody's heads all the time. Uh, It says, be respectful of people's choices and recognize that language that is slut-shaming, virgin-shaming, or sex-shaming in any way is wrong. It doesn't stigmatize or exclude sex workers. And the kind of sex-shaming that straight people experience is different than, for example, bisexual people. And that's the last two things I said with sex workers and um, bisexual people. Bisexual Mm -hmm. people are really hypersexualized asking for threesomes like that's kind of like the stereotype that we see and i feel like when you get down to it the fact that they can love both a man and a woman that's kind of discounted it's more they've been very fetishized to be a certain way so as an intersectional feminist you have to stand up for their right to want to love both a man or a woman without it being all about what they do in the bedroom, you know, right. knowing that what they choose to do with their bodies is their own and also protecting sex workers. That's a really big one. Right. And, um, and again, like I said, just to reiterate, when it comes to like bisexual people, they are far more likely to experience sexual violence because they've been fetishized in this way. Mm-hmm. Anyone who has been fetishized kind of like as this oh, unicorn, like that's yeah. what they say on Tinder a lot, you know, yeah. looking for a unicorn to join me and my girlfriend or whatever, you know what I mean? <sighs> and uh, that's very often what people see bisexual people as and very often um you know sex workers people don't understand that for many sex workers not all sex workers okay there's of course problems within that industry of course but um for many sex workers it is a job that they choose to do and participate in exactly and it doesn't need to be fetishized to the extent that they are in danger exactly um, this last one that they had on this Bustle article was what we were talking about earlier, and that is listening. Don't speak out of turn. Be an ally for groups that you don't directly identify. Being a true ally is to know when it is not your turn to speak. Lara Starling from The Fader says, Before I pitch any idea, I make sure I ask myself, am I the right person to tell this story? Mm-hmm. And I think that is a really good example to keep in mind when you are defending um, another group of people, making sure that you are being an ally in a way that is still highlighting the other person and mm-hmm. not benefiting yeah, you. Yeah, don't co-opt their story. I mean, and it's a fine line sometimes. Like, it, it definitely it, it's is. It's a fine line between feeling like you're defending someone and 
speaking and for speaking them. for them. Yeah, yeah. There's there's kind of like a a line there, and it's it can be difficult to know when you've crossed that. Yeah, and the last bullet point here says, "Be sure that you are speaking up and never over." Yes, and you know, you're with that one especially. I'm gonna make mistakes. You're gonna make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Everyone it's, will. Yeah, yeah. That's just, and you can't you can't always control it. But as long as you have the best intentions and you are able to uh, maybe admit when you have stepped over that line mm-hmm. and you're speaking over someone and then maybe let that person or the, someone from that group speak. Right. And I would also say um, to educate yourself as much as possible because yeah. I completely understand not knowing everything. None of us yeah. know everything. We're not completely educated on everything. And it can be, I've heard this argument a lot, especially from white feminists, where they're like, why are you getting mad when I'm trying to learn from you? Like, I'm, I, how am I supposed to know if you don't educate me? And I get that to an extent. It's like no one is born knowing everything. There's a lot of dismantling and undoing harmful things that we've learned in the past, harmful behaviors and ways of thinking. And so I do understand that sometimes it does take having one-on-one experiences with people from those communities to dismantle those ways of thinking. However, it can become difficult for people who live within certain intersections to have to constantly be educating and explaining things to you. Yeah, you can probably find something on the internet. Right, so if you really, <laughs> if you really have questions, Google's your friend. Yep. Um, you can educate yourself in order to be a better ally. And if you really want to know someone's personal experience, I feel like the best way to do that is to ask a friend if they would like to share their experience right. with have you. Have a relationship with that person yeah. outside of that I'm, conversation. I'm using you as my teacher yeah. for this thing. Exactly. You know? Yeah. It, go to a friend or someone that you trust and ask them if they are okay with discussing this. You know, ask ask the questions that you want from a place of saying, you know, I am not highly educated on this. I'm sorry if I asked the wrong thing. But then mm-hmm. through that, learn yeah. what's good to say. You know, but don't expect the friend. The friend could... Let let them know that they have the right to say no. Right. I don't want to hash out all this shit. Right. Yeah. You know? Um. Or here's some resources that you can totally. read on your own. Oh, you know I what I this, mean? Yeah. Because oh, I read this book. Oh, there's this article. Mm-hmm. Even that, it's like you kind of have to. Yeah, but I mean, be ready for it. But yeah, it's yeah. easier than like rehashing everything yeah. yourself. Should we talk a little bit about some of the critiques of intersectionality? Uh, before we do that, let's just talk about two more things. Let's do it really quickly uh, that I wanted to point out, mm-hmm. and that is one. The inclusion of men in feminism, yeah. I think, is important because uh, I feel like a lot of radical feminists, uh, people who consider themselves to be radical feminists, want the total exclusion of men yeah. from the conversation and from um, the movement, which I disagree with. Yeah. I believe that there is a very small part of intersectionality that requires us to allow men to come in and like and and yeah. be a part of this conversation and in addition to that also it means that we need to stand up for men and for this toxic masculinity culture exactly. that has um really kind of rotted out the core of our of our society yeah um we need to allow men to be vulnerable mm-hmm. uh, and if we are putting walls up and saying, like... No men allowed. No men allowed, you're not allowed in here. I think that that's a big part of it with, like, we need to be careful not to, yeah. go, not to like, go into misandry. Yeah. And remain feminists who are interested in equality that benefits everybody. Well, and the thing is, is that men cross those intersections as well. Right. There are men in the LGBTQ plus community. Yes. There are men of different races, different cultures, different ethnic uh, back... Or, um, Different cultural ethnic, backgrounds. Cultural backgrounds. Thank you. Different wealth. Different things like that. And they 
they need help as well. And that is a place, feminism should be a place to recognize that those intersections affect Mm -hmm. men as well. And just as we talked about in our toxic masculinity episode, if we do not start to tear down some of these kind of toxic behaviors that we have um, permitted in Mm -hmm. our culture for so long, we will find ourselves in a very dark place. So we need to kind of open the door and allow that in. And then just the last thing I wanted to talk about was classism uh, within feminism. You know, as we were talking about in the beginning of the feminist movement, whenever black women were being excluded, women of color, of course, native women uh, were being excluded, also poor women were being excluded. Uh, And of course, you know, people hear white privilege, right? And they think, um, well, I haven't been privileged. I grew up in poverty or whatever. And that's not what that means. It just means that uh, your skin color has still provided you certain advantages. Right. Is something that hasn't made your life more difficult. Doesn't mean you haven't been through shit. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) So, I mean, that is something that needs to be inclusive across the board as far as, like, when we're talking about feminism, not everyone has the... um, resources to participate. There are a lot of things when we talk about feminism that are exclusive Yeah, uh, for people who don't have financial resources. Exactly. And I saw this in one of the articles I read. I think maybe it was USA Today. Um, and it says, intersectional feminism means not focusing solely on breaking the glass ceiling in corporate America, for instance, but in raising the minimum wage, as nearly two-thirds of minimum wage workers in the U.S. are women, according mm-hmm. to the National Women's Law Center. And McFadden, who I think she is a African-American studies professor, uh, she said, I'm a little bit over how the mainstream narrative flattens the feminist movement to try and make it into the Sheryl Sandberg identity of feminism. Not to say that she didn't have ideas that were helpful and on point, but there is a class conversation that gets lost. And I feel like that happens a lot. We had, especially in the 90s, there was this very, like, girl power version of feminism that was corporate feminism. You got the Hillary Clintons in the power suits and, like, the Sheryl Sandbergs, like, leaning in. Yeah. And there's a class conversation that gets lost in that not everyone can afford to go to college Uh and not everyone can afford to lean in the way Sheryl Sandberg was kind of describing. Like, women can have it all. And that's not possible for if you can't people. afford childcare, if you can't afford birth control, if yep. you, you know, there are so many things that get lost in that conversation. That's true. If you um, discount people who maybe don't have the resources financially. Exactly. Uh, to get ahead. Yeah. You know? <sighs> All right. Let's talk a little bit about some of the critiques of intersectionality. Conservatives believe that intersectionality means because you're a minority, you get special standards and treatment. I, I mean, I don't even know what to say about that. Because yeah. it's, it's so clearly, again, once again, to me, what that is saying is we want to be oppressed so badly. Yeah. And because you're encroaching on, you're coming up on equality, you are you are oppressing us. Exactly. Your equality means our oppression. Because exactly. Because we are used to getting three-fourths of the pie, and now all of a sudden we only get half of it. Yeah, well, you know? and, they, and the way that it's worded, too, in a lot of other quotes that I read is that it's like the conservatives believe that intersectional feminists want to create a new racial hierarchy. And again, that's the fear. It's the fear that the white men will not be the number one in power anymore. And that makes them feel oppressed and it hurts their feelings. Right. Um, They also say that intersectional feminism puts a label on you. It tells you how oppressed you are. And it's basically a conspiracy theory of victimization, which I don't believe. They're like, you're pointing out all the ways that these people are victims, basically. It's, it's not pointing it out. It's acknowledging it. It's, 
It's saying yeah. that this is something that exists and is very real, that people face in their real lives. Yeah. Like, what do we gain by... And that's kind of like saying, like, I don't see color. Like, what do we gain by ignoring that there are differences and that those differences lead to certain disadvantages. Exactly, exactly. And the thing that... Um, I read a couple articles where Kimberly Crenshaw, the you know creator of intersectional... The term, yeah. And um, she's saying that a lot of the issues that people have with intersectionality is actually an issue with the way that it has evolved since the theory. It's not the theory itself that a lot of people disagree with. It's the way that it has evolved into our social construct. Mm -hmm. Um, That's kind of the thing that they tend to have more of a difficulty with. In 2017, writer Andrew Sullivan argued that intersectionality was a religion of sorts, (laughs) citing that speech must be filtered. He says, its version of original sin is the power of some identity groups over other over others. To overcome this sin, you must confess, i.e. check your privilege and subsequently live your life and order your thoughts in a way that keeps that sin at bay. So it's like we are afraid to have negative thoughts about all of this stuff. It is this cult that, of intersectionality. That doesn't make any sense at all. It I, it, it's so strange to me that this idea of being sensitive and kind and compassionate to other human beings is somehow seen as a detriment. It's so yeah. weird to me. Uh, Ben Shapiro's definition of intersectionality. Oh, great. Good old Ben Shapiro, everybody. Uh, I would define intersectionality as at least the way that I've seen it manifest on college campuses and in a lot of the political left as a hierarchy of victimhood in which people are considered members of a victim class by virtue of membership in a particular group. And at the intersection of various groups lies the ascent on the hierarchy. I I just, I don't understand that to me because I'm just like... You hear it talked about all the time, and, you know, not to quote the problematic Louis C.K., but he, <laughs> he did have a point whenever he was very honest in one of his stand-up, stand-ups saying, like, if I could go back in time, he's like, I love being a white guy, because if I could go back in time, there's no point in time where I wouldn't be safe. Oh, yeah, that's you know? a really common thing where it's like, oh, I love the 50s, I love the 40s, and it's like, well, because like, white people could go back to those times right. and be safe. Right, it's not safe. dangerous for yeah. you. And so, to me, this idea, like, when you talk to people who are trans, even if they love being trans, oftentimes they, they would say, like, this isn't necessarily the path I would have chosen from. Why would yeah. I choose the most difficult way to live my life? Exactly. So, to, to act like you are, asc- you are ascending to some more, like, kind of supreme being if you are facing the most difficult path you could be facing exactly. you are you are in more danger than anyone in any other group and by that's being, why people stay closeted right yeah by being you know if you are a trans woman of color who is overweight and disabled you are going to face so many more challenges yes, than anybody and, and else none of those things are that is that person's choice and, and <laughs> you no, know and in no way is society ever looking at that person and thinking this is the ideal. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's the thing. Whenever I've had arguments with people where they're like, pretty privilege is hard. And I'm like, hmm. I yeah. mean, there... What does that even mean, pretty privilege is hard? Like, saying that there are, in certain aspects, like, people will discount you. If For you look pretty. A, if you look a certain way. And I'm like, in no way is it more difficult. No. <laughs> in you no way. Sh- look at Instagram models. For one. Right, like, or, or people who are, like, being um, being skinny is hard, too. And I'm like, I'm not saying that there aren't I challenges. I hate that but so much. to act as though our society looks at skinny people 
the same way they look at people who are not thin yeah. is ridiculous. When people do the whole I'm being skinny shamed thing, it drives me up a wall. Listen, be, because be nice to people. Like, I get it. Yes. Like, don't be shitty to people don't based on their weight. Don't people for their size. I am all for that. But the, the stretch that I've seen especially a lot of celebrities go to of being like, feel bad for me because I'm being hated... For, like, being thin, just like someone would be hated for being fat. It's not the same. It's not the same thing. It's completely different. Yeah, so Ben Shapiro saying, or anyone saying, that everyone wants to be oppressed. And everyone, and again, like I said, yes, it's easy to focus on the ways in which you are oppressed. Yeah. But nobody wants their life to be more difficult. No. Not really. No, that's you know why people I mean. stay closeted. That's why people... Uh, you know, that's why a lot of people comply with social and societal norms. You know, I think about a lot of the black girls that I grew up with. We, I went to a Catholic school. There was always like only one or two people of color in my class mm-hmm. and they would have to kind of assimilate. Of course. To make do, you know, they would flatten their hair. They would dress a certain way. It was kind of like, you know, they had to fit in with what that Catholic school norm was supposed to be. Right. Well, and their cultural norm. And I, I yeah. totally... I completely hated the ways in which I was different, you know, growing up. So, I don't know. It's very insulting to me that anyone could look at that and say that this is some kind of, like, cult or it's kind of the oppression Olympics or whatever. I mean, a lot of people say feminism as a whole is a cult. Right. Which, in that case, sign me up. It's all good. I'm in it. So, to kind of, like, wrap up the episode, I found this really great quote from Juliette Williams, who is a professor of gender studies at UCLA, and she said, "Um, intersectional feminism is a form of feminism that stands for the rights and empowerment of all women, taking seriously the fact of differences among women, including different identities based on radicalization, sexuality, economic status, nationality, religion, and language. Intersectional feminism attends to the ways in which claims made in the name of women as a class can function to silence or marginalize some women by universalizing the claims of a re- of relatively privileged women. Yep. And I think that that just kind of, for me, that explains it so well. Uh-huh. We have these divisions, and it serves no one. It does not serve the community to universalize this experience and and make it seem as though women are one homogenous entity because yeah. we're not. And that is it's actually a critique of intersectionality as well, is that it's not focused enough. There's too many things to focus on where I kind of disagree. I feel like while there's so much to focus on, it is giving people autonomy uh, for what their um, experience is and what their intersections are, but mm-hmm. it's also making sure that everybody sticks together. It's very much about allyship and, and learning about Absolutely. other types of life. Because what it's doing, white feminism is exclusive, yeah. right? And like what this is doing is giving me more sisters. Like it's giving me more sisters exactly. in arms. It's making <laughs> it's beautiful. us stronger. Yeah. Like that's really what it is. It's yeah. like I have trans sisters now. You know, yeah. like I have sisters of every like race, religion, um, and yeah. that we shall be advocates for each other. We're united as a voice to advocate for each other. And like, that's, that's the most beautiful thing. And that's what makes it not so open-ended. You know, there, there are very specific causes that we can all, we all should be agreed upon and fighting for together because at the basis of everything, feminism is about equality. It is about treating one another the way that 
everybody should be treated. Right. It's about humanity. Exactly. Is, like, really what it's about. And yes. I want all of those stories. I want there to be a um, director who lives at the intersection of all of these different places who writes a story that I can watch and, and understand. That would be amazing. You know, that's what I want. Yeah. Uh, like, Lena Waithe has, has kind of, like, ascended in that way, where yeah. she's, like, um, you know, an LGBTQ, a member of the LGBTQ community and also a black woman. Yeah. Uh, and I... I love that. I love yeah. that we're starting to see more and more of that. We That's need amazing. To. It needs so. to be represented in the media so much more in order for intersectionality to really become the norm. Yeah, you absolutely. Know? So I hope you guys enjoyed <sighs> this episode. It was a long time coming. I wish I <laughs> had done it on a week when I wasn't <laughs> like foggy brained uh, yep. from the flu. I think you did great, Keegan. I didn't. I didn't Thank see you. any hint of foggy brain. So much. There were so many sentences I started and lost track of mid sentence in my brain and had to kind of like circle back. That's so. me on a daily <laughs> basis. Welcome to Madigan's brain. I'm like, what was I saying and why? Like that, and with words too. I'm like, I know. I meant to say that other word, but I said that word five times instead. Okay. So I hope it didn't come across too much. Um, and if we left anything out that you wish we had touched on or could have done better, please feel free to yes. reach out to us. You can email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can reach out to us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. You can also find us on Twitter, our rarely used Twitter account <laughs> at Yamf Podcast, Y-A-N-F Podcast. You can also find our business and group page on Facebook. You can leave us a review on our business page or on Apple Podcasts. We love getting reviews. You can also listen to us on Radio Public. Um, and one final thing before we go, I just wanted to say that, like, we do sometimes get messages of things that we do that sometimes don't feel as intersectional, and um, we're aware of those things. Yeah. We are working on them every day. Uh, we may not get it perfect all the time, but you guys know that, and you have shown us so much grace yes. uh, throughout this process of us becoming better intersectional feminists. Exactly. So we appreciate that, and we will continue to take in all the things that you have yeah. given to us. I so. mean, exactly. We started this show saying that, look, we are not gender studies majors. We are not, you know, experts at this by any means. This was a way for uh, us to teach you what we know and for you to teach us what you know. Yeah. It's all about education. So I, I always welcome... Uh, constructive criticism. You yeah. Know, call call us in on something. Yeah. Call us out on something. So thank you, Keegan, for mentioning that again. That is all that we have for you all today. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Bye. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.